The title of this morning's message, where we're exploring verses 19 to 21 in Romans chapter 9, is again in the form of a question, and it's this. If you can't see the screen or if you're listening online, does the clay have a say? Does the clay have a say? We're getting into the analogy of the clay in these verses. If you've already read it or if you've uh, been familiar with this passage. But um, we left off, or we're leaving off where we started, or where we, sorry, where we finished, rather, uh, last week. Verse 18, therefore, God is saying that if he wills it, if he desires it, then he's going to have mercy on someone. But at the same time, if he desires or if he wills that he wants to harden someone, then he's going to harden someone. So if he's going to show mercy, it's up to God on the person. If he's going to harden someone, it's God. He can do whatever he wants. That's where we left off last week. So that's where we're leaving off. So the question is, when you look at verse 14, again, the question, is there injustice with God when he can do this to someone? Where he chooses to show someone mercy? Or he chooses to harden someone? Is there injustice with God? And the, the absolute answer is no. However, if you interpret, as a Calvinist does, this verse, 18, to mean that he did this before you were born, then I am saying there is injustice. That is unfair. For God to determine whether you get saved no responsibility on your part. It's totally up to God to put it in your, to pretty much to give you the faith. And then on the other hand, this person, he doesn't give the faith to believe. That to me, that's injustice. That's unfair. But from last week, this is not the accusation that Paul is being given, that God is being accused of. That's not the accusation. The real accusation is that God apparently is unjust in fulfilling his purposes through an Israelite Specifically, a rebellious Israelite even though that Israelite is still and by the way I, I, very carefully a child of God. Not a child of God individually but a child of God as a corporate sense. Remember Israel? In a corporate sense. Israel 
was called the child of God in the Old Testament. Israel is the child of God. So for God to use a rebellious one to the point where he temporarily blinds them, he hardens them, he doesn't allow them to see the truth. That's the injustice. That's the accusation. It's sad how we relate this accusation to ourselves this day. It's to the Israelites. In order to learn or to, to believe that God mercies someone and hardens someone even before they are born, they usually believe in a doctrine called total depravity or total inability is the other word they use. Now, I believe in a doctrine called depravity, which means when I come into this world, I am spiritually dead. Because I'm spiritually dead, I can't automatically have communion with God. I can't automatically just have full access to God as I do now because I'm spiritually dead. In order for me to have full access to God, my, I have to be clean. My sins have to be forgiven. I have to be cleansed from all sin, all unrighteousness. And the only way that can happen is to believe that Jesus Christ does that for you. Got nothing to do with what I do. It's all from what I believe. Does God have the power to do it? I should say specifically, does Jesus have the power to do it? I'll say yes. Does Jesus have the authority to do it? I say yes. Jesus, do it to me. I understand, I recognize, I confess, I'm a sinner. I'm in need of forgiveness. I need that forgiveness. I need you to do it. And I'm, I, I'm convinced, I believe in my heart that Jesus, you're the only one who can do it. I can't do it myself. Jesus is the only one. I don't believe Allah can do it. Muhammad can do it, can't do it. I don't believe any of those other religions can do it. I can't believe, I don't believe I can do it. Only Jesus. Total depravity, however, says I am incapable of making that decision. Without God giving me the faith to make that decision. Do you see the difference? I believe we are capable. We just need to hear the gospel. We need to be convicted by the Holy Spirit. And then 
I decide to either have faith in that, to believe it, or I reject it. And lots of people will reject it. Why? Because they don't want to confess their sin. They don't want to lose their old life. Their old life, it's too attractive. There's too much in this world that's attractive for them. And so, the conclusion is, if you come to Christ, you have to be willing for your old self to die. Now, God kills your old self. This is where we get all mixed up because then we are, oh, we're a Christian, but we still go and do our old stuff. Does that mean your old stuff's not, hasn't, your old self hasn't died? Of course not. And so if that interests you, then please, please study chapter 8. Listen to my messages on that, and I'm sure you'll understand it better. So depravity, total depravity rather. Question, is it biblical? I'm saying it's not. Where does it come from? This verse in particular. You were made alive when you were dead in transgressions and sins. Your version might be the reverse around. While we were dead in our sins and transgressions, we were made alive. God made us alive. He actually had to make us new in order to, for us to become a Christian. That's the difference. It's the main difference between the Old and the New Testament, by the way. And that's what we're getting to Wednesday night, if you're interested. We're getting to the difference between those saved in the Old Testament compared to those saved in the New Testament. Was it all by faith? Has it always been by faith? Or is there a mixture of faith and works? Which one is it? There's all these verses that confuse us. James chapter 2 is 1, 2 verse 21 or 23. That's a, that's a confusing verse. But the difference is, right now, what, 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 what I'm talking about, a person saved in the Old Testament was not made completely new. They still had their evil heart. Their wicked heart. We, on the other hand, our wicked heart dies. And we get given a new heart, an obedient heart. That's, that's a big difference. Okay, so we're dead. But the mistake that's made with people who believe in this doctrine of total depravity is this. Hey, this guy is dead in trespasses and sins. And what his, this guy is doing is he's relating a person who is dead in his sins with someone who is physically dead. That's a mistake. Because they simply say, wow, you're dead. You can't revive yourself. I'm saying, no, I can't. But you're incapable of even responding to God because you're dead. I say, no. This is a mistake. Just because I am spiritually dead 
does not mean that I can't, sorry for the double negatives, but that I can't respond to him. Take, for instance, a four-year-old child. Can a four-year-old child come to know Christ? I think they can. My wife was saved as she was four years old. And when you're four years old, do you know everything about salvation and everything like that? No. But I think you can determine whether you have faith in Jesus forgiving your sins. So, is the doctrine of total depravity biblical? I'm saying no. But I'm going to go one step further. I'm actually going to say it's dangerous. This is a dangerous doctrine to believe in. It can be dangerous. I'm going to show a video right now. I purposefully didn't make the quality as good as it should be because it's more of the sound and I didn't want the computer to lag. But this is an interview of a former Christian who, um, his name's Derek Webb. He was the lead singer of a famous Christian band back in the day. And just, just take note, take note of, first of all, how the interviewer responds to him and the answers that he gives when it comes to this doctrine of total depravity. This, I'm sure by the end of it, you'll understand why it's dangerous. Mm. And with my Christian friends who try to convince me of this, I say, listen, like, I don't know why you're trying to persuade me. Mm. Because your own Bible says it's a gift. that it's a gift, a removing of a heart of stone, a replacing with a heart of flesh. That is not something you can do for me. Yeah. So if it's true, we're both depending on the Spirit to show yeah. up. I'm literally in the grave next to Lazarus, yeah. waiting for the to hear, waiting, waiting to hear my name. Yeah. And I'm going to lay in there dead till he shows up. Yeah. Somebody asked me uh, near the beginning of this year of living Christianity, well, what would it take for you to believe? What would it take for you mm. to believe in God? That's easy. God would have to give me faith yeah. Yeah. because um, I can't yeah. reach out and yeah. grab it. What it would take is a miracle. It would take a miracle. Yeah, it would. Like, end, end what, 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 what does it take for a dead man to come out of his, to come six feet out of the ground? Absolute new life. New life from death to life. Yeah, and that's what would be required. Yeah, and and I, I, I and I'm open to that. it. I'm, I mean, I'm literally, well, yeah. I'm literally in the grave waiting to hear my name. Yeah, any time. If, that, if that's the because if there is going to be a work of the spirit going on. I want it. And I won't be able to resist it. And yeah. I can't call out for it. Yeah. I cannot coax him over. Yeah. Either my name is written in the book of life or it's not. Yeah. And, and I mean, so if we're going to really get into the language, the hard language of the Bible, provocative as it may be, mm -hmm. like I'm had to, I got to a point, I don't like binary ideas or statements, but yeah. there's a few that feel emotionally like they are, yeah. although maybe they're not. But there's a point where I said, you know what, maybe, maybe God made me and fashioned me for destruction. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's the Because he, because he, he says he does that. Jacob, I have loved; Esau, I have hated, through, for the good pleasure of his own will. That's right. And will. and he receives no counsel but his own about yep. that. And so there's nothing I'm going to be able to do to change his mind about it. So maybe it's all real, and I'm just not. Firstly, the word he cuts off. I'm just not. Can you guess what it is? Chosen. I'm just not chosen. But if you, if you want to listen to this interview. YouTube Derek Webb interview, and this will come up a couple of times where he's in this pew. And if you study this interview very carefully, you'll find that they actually contradict themselves. 
Because if you missed it, he's saying, I'm just waiting for God to call me out of the grave. I'm just waiting for God to do it. I'm waiting for the miracle. But if you believe in total depravity, then you wouldn't be waiting for it. You wouldn't be waiting. So it's very self-contradictory what they do here. But this is the danger. What's he doing? He's taking the responsibility off himself. It's all up to God. That's dangerous. Very dangerous. We are all responsible to believe in Jesus Christ. We will all give account on whether we believed or we didn't believe. It's on us. And Romans chapter 1 says, we will be without excuse. Number one thing that causes us to be without excuse is creation. Looking at creation. Because you have to be a fool to say that what's happening in the world around us, I'm not talking about what's happening with people, I'm talking about what's happening with seasons, gravity, stuff like that, nature, What's happening with nature is not an accident. There has to be an intelligent being that formed all this. So that's the number one thing. But then you go on to this discussion, we won't go on right now, is, ah, but what about those people who have never heard of Jesus Christ? Because you're saying, Tim, Jesus Christ is the only way. And that's for a Wednesday night. But my response to this, I can only have one response, and that's this. You're all familiar. I just got to put my hand in my head and this is, just, this is just sad. But there's so many people that believe this. You have no idea how popular this doctrine in particular, in particular is, is growing. And all it does is just takes the responsibility off ourselves. It's very dangerous. And so my question is, when you, we read Romans 10, 17, faith does not come from God. It comes from hearing. Hearing what? Well, hearing the word of God, the word of Christ, hearing the gospel. Why isn't the gospel enough for God to use us to have faith, to respond to? And so therefore, therefore he has mercy on whom he wills, and whom he wills he hardens. But you will say to me then, why does he still find fault for who has resisted his will? Now we're getting into the passage. Sorry for the long introduction. But this is what we're dealing with. Now, listen very carefully. That accusation again, that question towards God, would that come from what we call an Arminian who believes that God does not choose us for salvation? The answer is no, because the first time that people have come up with this doctrine of total depravity occurred in the 4th century. The 4th century. This was written before then. And it happened from a, by a man of, uh, called Augustine, who we call one of our forefathers, a great man of God. A great theologian, 
Yes, he did some marvelous stuff. But it's interesting how he just came, he just came from, or he converted from a religion that taught about what Calvinists teach. And it's like his, his mind had not been completely renewed. He was saved, of course. But what I see happening is that he's just grasping things from what he has taught as an unbeliever and reading them into verses of Scripture and then he has his doctrine. So what is it? What actually is this question about? First of all, who is asking this question? It can't be someone who believes what we've just been talking about. We know that. So who is it? Well, we know it's coming from a Jew. We know it's coming from a descendant of Israel that has a problem with what God is doing. We've just been talking about Israelites, and not just this morning, but through the series, Israelites having a problem with God's word failing because God's telling the Israelites, Abraham, the father of the Jews, is going to be the father of many people, many children of promise. And what's going on, Paul? Most of the Jews don't even believe in Jesus Christ. The person who you're talking about is the answer to God's promise. So has God's word failed? And this is another accusation. He's just gone on saying no. In order for God to fulfill that promise, he's going to, mercy some, he's going to give mercy to some, he's going to harden others. He hardens the rebellious ones. And that, well, that in itself is, that's injustice right there. But why does he still find fault then with me? So I'm going to put myself in the, in the shoes of, a, of an Israelite. I'm rebellious. I'm, 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 I have the belief, the firm belief, that because I'm a descendant of Israel, Israel I'm a descendant of Abraham, I automatically should be a child of promise. I automatically should be able to go to heaven just because of who I am, just because of my eth ethnicity. It's what Jews believed. I think they still believe it. You're telling me that God used me even to bring about the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. So if I'm being used by God to fulfill his plans... And by the way, if you want to see the parallel passage to this, it's Romans chapter 3. We went through it at the start of Romans chapter 3, 1 till 7. He's answering these same questions. It's the same type of question. But as I said earlier in the series on chapter 9, he's expanding this answer. It deserves three chapters to answer this question, not just seven verses. He's just briefly touched on it in Romans chapter 3. Now he's really giving into detail. So I'm here an Israelite. I'm hardened. God's hardening me. God's will is to harden me. His desire is to use me in my rebellion to bring about his righteousness or to bring about his plan. So well, why am I to blame? I'm just doing what God wants me to do. I'm not resisting his will. But who are you, O oh man, in verse 20? Who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? 
Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? And then the analogy that we're all familiar with. Verse 21. Does not the potter have power over the clay from the same lump to make one vessel for honour and another for dishonour? So remember to a Calvinist that reads, I'm a piece of clay and either God has made me for honour, in other words, to be saved, or God has made me for dishonour, to be unsaved, to remain an unbeliever. That's what God has chosen. I'm just the clay. I'm just a piece of clay. I don't have any say in it. It's interesting how Calvinists like this analogy, but when they're approached with an analogy of us just being a puppet and God's the hand that just causes us to do something, they have a problem with that. Oh, no, 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 no. So firstly, what does the clay represent? Does the clay represent all of humanity, which a Calvinist believes, or does it represent an Israelite? It can't be someone who represents humanity, all of humanity, by the way, because we're going to get really specifically when it says from the same lump, because we're relating to something, again, that um, verse 11, for the children being not yet born, we're talking about something that happened before, and I'm not saying this, but Calvinists interpret this as something happening before people were born. But we'll get into why Paul makes the analogy of the clay and how it doesn't necessarily mean that God started off with that piece of clay like that, like, or damaged and marred. So, why the clay analogy? And the answer is most likely, not for certain, but most likely, Paul was referencing Jeremiah chapter 18. So if you turn to Jeremiah chapter 18, and um, I'm going to quickly go through this because of time. So I implore you, please do read this, and I'll just make a few points about what Jeremiah, or what God is saying through Jeremiah. The, Lord, the word of which came to Jeremiah, chapter 18, from the Lord saying, Arise, go down to the potter's house, there I will cause thee to hear my words. Then I went down to the potter's house, and behold, he wrought a, a work on the wheels, and the vessel that he made of clay was marred. Notice the vessel that he made of clay was marred or damaged in the hand of the potter. So he made it again, another vessel, as seemed good to the potter to make it. I'll stop right there. That to me tells me that it's not humanity. It's because God did not make the clay marred. It became marred. It became damaged. It didn't start off as damaged. God made humanity as perfect. Then, from our own result, it became marred. It became damaged. It became fallen. But let's move on. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, O house of Israel, cannot I do with you as this potter? Says the Lord, Behold, as the clay is in the potter's hand, so are ye, or so are you, in my hand, O house of Israel. And then people stop there. But let's continue. Let's continue and ask the question, does the clay have a say? 
at what instant I shall speak concerning a nation. So what has Jeremiah just related the clay to? Israel. What instant, what time I shall speak concerning a nation and concerning a kingdom to pluck up and to pull down and to destroy it. If that nation, I'll say it again, if that nation against whom I have pronounced turn from their evil, I will repent of the evil that I thought to do unto them. And at what instant I shall speak concerning a nation and concerning a kingdom to build and to plant it, if it do evil in my sight, again, if it do evil in my sight, that it obey not my voice, then I will repent of the good wherewith I said I would benefit them. If that King James Version is, is um, confusing you, then please read a modern day version of that this week. Now therefore go to, go to speak to the men of Judah and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, saying, Thus saith the Lord, Behold, I frame evil against you and devise a device against you. Return ye now every one from his evil way and make your ways and your doings good. And they said, There is no hope, but we will walk after our own devices and we will everyone do the imagination of his evil heart. In other words, we'll just follow our own wicked ways. We won't... We won't do what the Lord says. Does the clay have a say in that? It does. The clay, the way it acts, determines. Israel, the way it acts, determines how the potter frames them, molds them. The way Israel acts determines the way God treats them. And this is the marvelous difference. The marvelous difference, which I don't believe we all get. What's so marvelous about the New Testament is even though I probably, whether once, twice, however often, regardless of how long I do it, if I turn back to my evil ways, the Lord is still gracious to treat me as a righteous person. That he shouldn't be able to do, but he does. That should be mind-boggling to us. And that helps us grasp how much love he has for us. And that in itself should implore us to turn from our wicked ways. It's the grace of God that teaches us to deny ungodliness. Not, oh, you shouldn't do that, otherwise God will be angry with you. It's the wrong way. So why does he still find fault when you read? Why does he still find fault with the clay? Why does he still find fault with Israelite? Because in order for God to harden them, they actually had to be hardened in the first place. It was man's decision. It was the Israelites' decision to be hardened, just like Pharaoh's decision. In order for God to use him to get the Israelites out of Egypt, he hardened himself. Once Pharaoh became hardened, then God hardened him even more, where he blinded him to any truth, just to fulfill that purpose. And he did the same with the Israelites when it came to the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Because now we're going to get into why. 
Why did God do that? Well, we know. So we as Gentiles can be included in the promise. We as Gentiles could have an opportunity to be a child of promise. In order for that to happen, he had to harden his own elected children. Can you believe being used by God in that way? Why does he find fault? Because it's my fault that I got myself in that position. It was my fault. That's why he can still find fault. So I covered from the same lump. Notice the same lump. From the same lump. So it's either from all of humanity or it's either all from Israel. Which one do you think? Now to make one vessel for honour, one for dishonour. See, I don't even believe this is actually talking about salvation when it comes to honour and dishonour. I actually believe it's talking about the way God uses an Israelite. Notice this Two ways God could have used someone, an Israelite. He could have used an Israelite or a Jew, whatever you want to call them, to um, send the message of his love. So prophets were used. Judges were used. All sorts of people. Then when you come into the New Testament, not every Israelite became an apostle. Not every Israelite was given the, the, a vessel for honour in the, in the context of being used to bring about this thing, this holy word. Not everyone was used. He used some for honour, but at the same time, he used some for dishonour. He used people to bring about this terrible, terrible catastrophe of Jesus dying on the cross. But if that didn't happen, then we wouldn't be here today. But to be used by God, to bring about that, it's dishonorable. It's disgraceful, isn't it? Shame on those people who spat on Jesus Christ. Shame on those people who who didn't even say a word. They crucified him literally, as Peter accuses him in the book of Acts. You, the Jews, crucified your Messiah. Disgraceful. Dishonorable. That's a vessel being used for dishonor. And notice how God still loves them. God still loves them, which we're about to read. Not just in this chapter, but in chapter 10 and 11, he wants them to be saved. Even the start of Romans chapter 9, if Paul wants them to be saved, then you have to say that God wants them to be saved. It's their choice though. God still loves them. It's just that, mate, God's going to use you even if you are totally against him. That's dishonor. That's disgraceful. But there's still hope for him. There's still hope. So does the clay have a say in whether he is formed for honour or dishonour? You betcha, he does. He does. Hopefully you've got that. And just look, when you look at Jeremiah 18, uh, uh, yeah, Jeremiah 18, <laughs> Calvinist always stops at verse 6. Never associates verse 7 to 12 
in regards to what Paul is saying in chapter 9. Just, look, just listen to any well-known Calvinist. Never, never approach Jeremiah 18 verses 7 to 12. But the more interesting thing is this. Paul relates this again in the New Testament. And I'm sorry, I'm going over time, but this is really important. We can be suitable, pretty much is the title. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 20 to 21. He says, But in a great house there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay. Interesting. He's bringing up clay again. Some for honor. Wow, using the same language. And some for dishonor. Therefore, if, ah, the magic word, if, if anyone cleanses himself from the latter, if anyone cleanses himself from dishonor, he will be a vessel for honor, sanctified, useful for the master, prepared for every good work. If you read that, I'm reading it. If he cleanses himself from this, he's going to be a vessel for honor. Very interesting. Can we apply the clay analogy today? I think we can. Even though it's not the intention of Paul in Romans chapter 9. But we can still relate it to ourselves. We still can. Why? Just think of this question. What is the overall image of the clay God is aiming to form in us? If we put ourselves as the clay, God as the potter, what's he trying to mold us into? Christ. Jesus Christ. The image of Jesus Christ. Do we get a say in it? Temporarily, yes. Temporarily, yes. Ultimately, for all of us, we're going to get there. When we are given our glorified bodies, we're going to be in the image of Christ. But in the meantime, does the clay still have a say if we apply it to ourselves? Yes. And this is the Christian walk. Every single day, now this is, if you don't hear anything else, listen to this. Every single day, if you are one in this room that has been cleansed of all unrighteousness, you believe in Jesus Christ, you have a choice every single minute of every single day. You either make the decision to be led by the Spirit, or you make the decision to be led by the flesh. You either have, make the choice to express Jesus in absolutely every single moment or you have the choice. Even though you have the Spirit of God in you, God still gives you the choice to express your old fleshly self. Regardless of how many times you make the choice for whatever, in the end, we're still going to be glorified into the image of Christ. Another indication of just how gigantic, I'm trying to think of other adjectives, of describe his love for us. Amazing. Amazing. Let's be thankful for that. But at the same time, 
get real with God. Because it's all to do with here. You have a choice. You set your mind on things of God, or you set your mind on the things of this world, the things of selfishness, self-centeredness. You choose that. Your salvation is not dependent on it, but your joy is. I say we still have a say. So let's make sure that our say is always in favor of what the potter is trying to do in our lives. Thank you, Lord, for your love. I just ask for your blessing upon every single one of us. You know our hearts. You know our minds. You know our lives inside out. You determine that regardless of what we do on this earth, you have determined before the foundation of the world that we are going to be blameless. We are going to be conformed fully into the image of Christ. We look forward to that time, Father. But in the meantime, help us to be good stewards of what you have given us. Help our minds to continually be willing to be molded further and into more detail as each day passes on into that image of Christ. We thank you once again for the great salvation, the wonderful love you have given to all of us. We ask for this help in Jesus' name. Amen.